Chapter Five of Baseball Joe in the Central League by Lester Chadwick. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Reading by Donald Cummings. Chapter Five: The Clash. That's the way. Line em out now. Put some speed into that. Look out for a high one. Oh, get farther back. I'm going to knock the cover off this time. These were only a few of the cries and calls that echoed over the ball field at Montville. The occasion was the daily practice of the Pittston Nine, and orders had come from the manager and trainer to start in on more lively work. It was Joe's third day with the professionals. He had made the acquaintance of all the players, but as yet had neither admitted nor been admitted to a real friendship with any of them. It was too early. Joe held back because he was naturally a bit diffident. Then, too, most of the men were older than he, and with one exception, they had been in the professional ranks for several seasons. That one exception was Charlie Hall, who played short. He, like Joe, had been taken that spring from the amateur ranks. Hall had played on a Western College team, and had been picked out by one of the ever-present professional scouts. With Charlie, Joe felt more at home than with any of the others and yet he felt that soon he would have good friends among the older men. On their part, they did not become friendly with Joe at once simply for the reason that they wanted to size him up or get his number, as Jimmy Mack put it in speaking of the matter. But they'll cotton to you after a bit, Joe, said the assistant manager, and you'll like them, too. Don't get discouraged. I won't, was the answer. There was one man on the team, though, with whom Joe felt that he would never be on friendly terms, and this was Jake Collin, one of the pitchers, the chief pitcher and mainstay of the nine on the mound, from what Joe picked up by hearing the other men talk. And Collin himself was not at all modest about his ability. That he had ability Joe was ready to concede, and Collin wanted everyone else to know it, too. He was always talking about his record and his batting average, which, to do him credit, was good. Colin was not much older than Joe, but a rather fast life and hard living counted for more than years. Joe heard whispers that Colin could not last much longer. Perhaps it was a realization of this that made Colin rather resent the arrival of our hero on the Pittston Nine, for he gave Joe but a cold greeting, and, as he moved off to practice, the young pitcher could hear him saying something about college dudes thinking they can play professional ball. Joe's face flushed but he said nothing. It was something that called more for deeds than words. "'Everybody lively now. I want some snappy work,' called Jimmy Mack, as the practice progressed. "'If we're going to play the Montville team Saturday, we want to snow them under. A win by a few runs won't be the thing at all, and, let me tell you, those boys can play ball. So step lively, everybody. Run bases as if you meant to get back home some time this week.' Slug the ball until the cover comes off. And you, Colin, get a little more speed on your delivery. Is your arm sore? Arm sore? I guess not. I'm all right, and the man's eyes snapped angrily. Well, then, show it. Let's see what you've got up your sleeve anyhow. Here comes Gregory now. He'll catch a few for you, and then we'll do some batting. The manager, whom Joe had met and liked, came out to join in the practice. He nodded to our hero, and then took Colin off to the side to give him some instructions. 
Joe, under the direction of Jimmy Mack, was allowed to do some pitching now. With Terry Hansen, the left fielder, to back him up, Joe began throwing in the balls on a space in front of the grandstand. Joe noticed that Colin regarded him sharply in the intervals of his own practice, but he was prepared for a little professional jealousy, and knew how to take it. He had seen it manifested often enough at school and college, though there the spirit of the university was paramount to personal triumph. Every player was willing to sacrifice himself that the team might win. And, in a large measure, of course, this is so in professional baseball. But human nature is human nature, whether one is playing for money or for glory, and in perhaps no other sport where money counts for as much as it does in baseball will you find more of a spirit of the school than in the ranks of the diamond professionals. Take it easy, Joe. Take it easy, advised Terry with a good-natured smile, as the lad stung in the balls. You've got speed, and I'm willing to admit it without having you split my mitt. But save yourself for a game. You're not trying to pitch anyone out now, you know, and there's no one looking at you. I guess I forgot this was just practice, admitted Joe with a laugh. I'll throw in some easy ones. He did, and saw an admiring look on Terry's face. They seem to have the punch. That's a nice little drop you've got. But don't work it too much. Vary your delivery. From time to time, as the practice proceeded, Terry gave Joe good advice. Occasionally this would be supplemented by something Mac or Gregory would say, and Joe took it all in, resolving to profit by it. The practice came to an end, and the players were advised by their trainer, Mike McGuire, to take walks in the country round about. "'It'll be good for your legs and wind,' was the comment. Joe enjoyed this almost as much as the work on the field, for the country was new to him and a source of constant delight. He went out with some of the men and again would stroll off by himself. Saturday, the day when the first practice game was to be played, found Joe a bit nervous. He wondered whether he would get a chance to pitch. So, too, for that matter, did Tom Tooley, the Southpaw mound man, who was nearer Joe's age than was Colin. "'Who's going to be the battery?' was heard on all sides, as the Pittston players went to the grounds. "'The old man hasn't given it out yet.' was the reply of Jimmy Mack. The old man was always the manager, and the term conveyed no hint of disrespect. The Montville team, a semi-professional one, was a good bit like the Silver Stars, Joe thought, when he saw the members run out on the diamond for practice. Still, they looked to be a husky lot, as he admitted, and he was glad of it, for he wanted to see what he and his teammates could do against a good aggregation. "'Play ball! Play ball!' called the umpire as he dusted off the home plate there was quite a crowd present and when gregory handed over his batting list the umpire made the announcement batteries for pittston colin and gregory for montville smith and jennings um he's going to pitch colin murmured tooley in joe's ear that means we warm the bench joe was a little disappointed but he tried not to show it the first game was neither better nor worse than many others. Naturally, the playing was ragged under the circumstances. The Pittstons had everything to lose by being beaten, and not much to gain if they won the game. On the other hand, the home nine had much to gain in case they should win, so they took rather desperate chances. Pittston was first at bat, and succeeded in getting two runs over. Then came a slump, and in quick succession three men went down, two being struck out. 
The Montville pitcher was a professional who had been in a big league, but who had drifted to a minor and finally landed in the semi-pro ranks. But he had some good heaves left. Colin walked to the mound with a rather bored air of superiority. There was a little whispered conference between him and the catcher-manager, and the second half of the first inning began. Colin did well, and though hit twice for singles, not a run came in, and the home team was credited with a zero on the scoreboard. "'Oh, I guess we can play some,' cried one of the professionals. "'What are you crowing over?' demanded Jimmy Mack. "'If we win this, I suppose you fellows will want medals. Why, this is nothing but a kid bunch we're up against.' "'Don't let him fool you, though,' advised the manager, who overheard the talk. And then, to the surprise and dismay of all, the home team proceeded to do things to the professionals. They began making runs, and succeeded in stopping the winning streak of the Pittstons. The detailed play would not interest you, and, for that matter, it was a thing the Pittstons did not like to recall afterward. There was a bad slump, and when the seventh inning arrived, Gregory called, "'Matson, you bat for Colin.' Joe felt the blood rush to his face. "'Does that mean I'm going to be taken out of the box?' asked the chief pitcher, stalking angrily over to the manager. "'It means just that, son. I can't afford to lose this game. And we sure will, the way you're feeding em into em. I guess you drew it a little too fine the last few days. You need a rest.' "'But I, er, I,' protested Colin. "'That'll do,' said Gregory sharply. "'Joe Matson will pitch. It's a chance.' but I've got to take it. "'What's the matter with Tooley?' demanded Colin. "'What do you want to go shove this raw college Jake in ahead of us for? "'Say!' "'Go to the bench,' ordered the manager. "'I know what I'm doing, Colin.' The pitcher seemed about to say something, and the look he gave Joe was far from friendly. Then, realizing that he was under the manager's orders, he stalked to the bench. "'You won't do this again if I can prevent it.' snapped Colin at Joe, as he passed him. I'll run you out of the league if you try to come it over me. Only a few players heard him, and one or two whispered to him to quiet down, but he glared at Joe, who felt far from comfortable. But he was to have his chance to pitch at last. End of chapter 5